This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. A foggy day. In London town. Oh, yes. A rather stormy day, in fact, too, in London. Uh, and this all has to do about Brexit. Talk about the Monday blues, Brexit blues to be exact. Boris Johnson, the face of Brexit, resigning. And that happened just hours after Brexit Secretary David Davis quit in protest over Theresa May's efforts to keep Britain closely bound to the EU after the split. So much going on. Let's get into this with Alex Morales, UK government reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us uh, from London. Alex, what's the latest? Have things kind of settled down or not even close? Well, we're still waiting for the Prime Minister to appoint um, a successor to Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary. Um, The drama is still playing out in Parliament where um, the the European Research Group, which is Theresa May's pro-Brexit backbench lawmakers, they're having a meeting um, in, I guess, about 15, 20 minutes' time. Um, And they're the sort of most vocal in opposing the the plan the Prime Minister laid out on Friday. What And remind us of that plan that she laid out on Friday, because as, as Joe Weisenthal of Bloomberg mentioned, it kind of all started on Friday and, and went through the weekend. But the plan that she laid out was what specifically? Well, so for months, the prime minister and her cabinet have been uh, essentially squabbling over the format that Brexit should take and what, what future relationship with the European Union Britain should seek. Um, and, and there's been a split between those who wanted to remain in the European Union, who wanted the closest possible ties, and those who wanted to leave the, the EU and strike out this, this new global Britain and, and sever ties um, so that we can strike new fra- uh, trade deals. And on Friday, the Prime Minister um, gathered her cabinet in her country home um, and laid out a plan that essentially is, it, it would amount to a soft Brexit, um, pandering to the, pro, the pro-EU the pro side of her party. Is she right to do a softer Brexit? I mean, considering the vote, considering potentially the impact it will have? I mean, already we've seen an economic impact on uh, London, on the UK overall as a result of this. Well, I'm not going to get into whether she's right or wrong, but looking at the parliamentary arithmetic, any, any Brexit deal she strikes with the EU, she has to get through the House of Parliament in London. Now, there's a, there's a clear majority of lawmakers um, for a soft Brexit, whereas those wanting a harder Brexit um, are in the minority. So if she ha- wants to get a deal through, she has to do one that keeps close ties to the EU. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, I, and I, I, I hear you about not, saying whether or not she's right or wrong. But I guess my point is that since this has, since the Brexit vote, I mean, what we've seen is certainly a little bit of a slowdown, correct, in terms of, I know some of the reporting we've done here about what's happened to the UK, that we've seen, you know, some concerns and we've seen that impacted on the economy. So I guess my question is, you know, do folks agree that in order to keep up the economic growth of the UK, that there needs to be still some ties to the EU? Well, most, most of the economic analysis suggests 
suggests that that Britain, if Britain wants to, to keep growth strong, it should mm-hmm. keep as close ties as possible with the European Union. Um, that you know, it's a block, it's a trading block of 500 million uh, people, um, and it's a market that's right on Britain's doorstep. Um, whereas the the, the pro Brexit crowd um, are calling for trade deals with Australia and New Zealand and, and the United States as well, which you know some of them are very big economies, but they're much further away. So now what happens? What's next? And is Theresa May at risk uh, in terms of her position? Well, it's difficult to say whether her position is at risk. What what she is at risk of is um, her lawmakers triggering a a no-confidence vote. Now, to do that, it it requires 48 of her lawmakers to write, it's sort of an arcane procedure, to write to the the chairman of what's called the 1922 committee, which is a committee of the conservative backbenchers. And as soon as the 48th letter arrives, that triggers a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister. Now, then, if she then loses that, and, and it needs to be half of MP or more than half of MPs voting against her, then a leadership contest is, is triggered. Um, so it's possible that there are enough lawmakers who want to write that letter to get to the 48 threshold, but I don't really get the sense that more than half of her parliamentary party wants to see her, throw her out. It's interesting because she's got this, you know, on the domestic home front, and then she's got, you know, the other side of it. I believe the German deputy government spokeswoman uh, had come out warning that time is running short for talks between the U.K. and the European Union with negotiations, quote, entering the decisive phase. I mean, the clock is ticking, right? Come March, the U.K. is out. Yeah, I mean, yes, the, the, the clock is ticking. And, you know, if you follow uh, the procedure to the letter of the law, we, uh, the country has until two years from when it triggered Brexit. So that was March. Uh, I'm thinking back now, 2017. That's March last year. Yeah. It's got exactly two years to strike a deal. And, and then Britain leaves the European Union. Now, uh, if, if she hasn't struck a deal on, on the future relationship and, and on the divorce terms, then Britain will tumble out of the block. Uh, next March on WTO trading terms. What's fascinating, we're talking with Alex Morales, UK government reporter at Bloomberg News from London. Alex, we were kind of fascinated. We thought with all this news that was going on and the turmoil uh, that seemed to be playing out, certainly in the UK, um, that we would have seen the FTSE come undone. And yet markets held up. Why is that? Well, I think I think the market is sort of a bit used to the turmoil in UK politics at the moment. Um, you, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't trade stocks and bonds, so I'm probably not the best person to ask why right. um, the markets have been unwilled. But um, there's been a lot of political turmoil, and, and I, I guess a lot of this is priced in. Right, right. The people have just kind of gotten used to it. Um, just got about 30 seconds left here. So what's the next thing we wait for someone to be named to replace Boris Johnson? Yes. Um, I mean, we'd expect that to happen this evening, um, but the Prime Minister spent much of the day in meetings, so she probably hasn't had time to appoint anyone. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't think she can get any sleep, that's for sure. Um, Alex Morales, appreciate the update. Alex Morales is our UK government reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us on the phone from London. Follow him on Twitter at Alex. J.F. Morales. My way's clearly better. Boringer and deader. Let's agree to disagree. Uh, <laughs> agreeing to disagree. That's certainly how it feels between uh, U.S. and Chinese officials when it comes to trade issues. Right now, we want to get into what our next guest um, observation about 
the U.S.-China trade war and how 79% of most assets invested in international products are highly correlated to China. So let's get into this with Joe Barato. He's back with us, CEO at uh, Arrow Investment Advisors. Uh, They have about uh, $85 million in assets under management. Joe joining us on the phone from Laurel, Maryland. Joe, nice to have you here. Explain this. Almost 80% of most assets invested, you say, in international products are correlated to China, maybe not directly, but even indirectly. Is that the point? Yeah, I mean, what I did was I had studied all ETFs and mutual funds that have international exposure and looked at the correlations of those strategies. And what what I discovered, and it was really shocking to me, was how highly correlated the most of those assets were to the you know the chinese market but it's not surprising i mean if you think if you think about it china china is the second largest economy in the in the world from a gdp perspective uh and they have their tentacle spread around the world when it comes to uh, their consumption of fuel, uh, mining, and agricultural products. I mean, they're, they're really taking it from around the world, which might be why the, a lot of countries are, are, are being hurt right now because of, you know, the Chinese economy hasn't been that strong, uh, you know, over the last 12 months. Right, relatively speaking. So, okay, so does this mean you start to tinker around with your portfolio as a result of this, or do you hold off a little bit? No, I think, you know, look, I'm a big believer, you know, we wrote this in our research in the beginning of the year, that investors need to be thinking about not only their own, their domestic exposure, but where they have exposure internationally. Like, you know, that correlation that I told you a second ago, mm-hmm. most international products are highly correlated to EFA. So, you know, I think what that tells me is investors should be thinking about when they're looking at exposure to the international markets, make sure it's not highly correlated to the U.S. And in some cases, make sure it's not highly correlated to China. Maybe you've got to look at some of the frontier markets or maybe individual countries uh, at that level. Um, and maybe even some of the sectors that some of those countries, because a lot of these plays in the international markets have a lot to do with concentration of the sectors for those particular countries. Would you be saying this if we weren't having this U.S.-China trade spat? I would still be saying this. No matter the, the trade spat to me is, is a, I think, a short-term thing. I think eventually it'll resolve itself. I think what's going on in China has a lot to do with more of the more of the economics that are going on right now there. And, and I think you know we're just kind of pushing the button right now a little bit further. But no, I would I'd be saying this that, that investors should always be thinking about correlations when they're putting something into their portfolio. They should be looking very closely at correlation of what that instrument's going to do to the overall portfolio. It's interesting when you I'm, – I'm just uh, reading a book um, about India right now. We're going to have a guest on a little bit later on. He's written a book called The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age, and just takes a look at the millionaires, billionaires that are being created in India right now and just talks about the potential there. There's obviously some pitfalls because the wealth isn't being spread around. Uh, but nonetheless, when you look at um, emerging markets at this point – where is it that you see let's let's put China aside as you say you know maybe we've got to think elsewhere where are the markets uh, emerging that you really find uh, hold some potential incredible potential investment potential for investors Wow that's a that's a um, that's an interesting question I mean all right look I'll tell you what when you look at the world right now and you know year to date, um, Saudi Arabia is doing very well. Qatar is doing very well. Uh, Norway and Finland are doing very well relative to the rest of the, even relative to the United States. 
Um, you know, from my perspective, um, we we look at two ways of kind of looking for exposure in the international markets. We look at uh, relative strength or momentum. You know, see, so we're looking for the strongest performing countries and trying to repeat. You know, trying to find that. And then another approach could be looking for deep value at the country level. So I'm a big believer that you know you should be hunting at the country level, similar to way people look at uh, sectors. You know, you can do the same thing at the country level. Deep value is another way of looking for exposure. Last year, Qatar was one of the worst performing countries. Mm-hmm. This year, Qatar is as an aggregate is up about 8% year-to-date. That's, you know, comparing that to the U.S. equity market, that's pretty solid. Um, You know, most international countries are down this year. But some of those countries, look, even Russia has rebounded very nicely this year compared to what it was doing last year. And Saudi Arabia... Um, even Israel was a country that was down significantly last year, uh, but Israel benefits from the technology sector that it provides exposure to. So I think from my perspective, when I'm looking at the international markets, I like to look at the country level, and I like to apply some type of methodology around that, whether I'm looking for strength or looking for deep value. Right. Just be consistent about applying that. And then when you aggregate that with, it. with a couple of countries, that's how it work, can work for right. investors. And just a reminder of diversification and not looking for correlation among all those investments makes sense. Joe Barato, thank you so much. CEO of Arrow Investment Advisors on the phone from Laurel, Maryland. That's what all hotel properties hope you'll say. Be our guest. Come stay with us. Uh, and in terms of hotel properties right now, we're seeing a lot of movement uh, within the space. Blackstone Group, in fact, beginning to market and sell some of its hotel properties. You've got uh, Blackstone also picking up LaSalle hotel properties just last month. And then Host Hotels weighing a $2 billion hotel portfolio sale. So let's get a look inside the hotel REIT sector and the role of private equity, the increasing role of private equity. Let's head to uh, Chicago, bring in Michael Belisario. He's Senior Research Analyst of Hotel REITs over at Baird. Hey, Michael, good to have you here. We're, we are seeing a fair amount of movement, aren't we, in terms of buying and selling right now within this group? Yeah, we certainly are. You mentioned Blackstone. They are the biggest and they're the most active. They're always buying and selling. And I think the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the biggest catalyst is that people feel better about the world today and the debt market is white hot. And the private equity guys use a lot of leverage, and that just makes the math work that much better for them when they're doing their underwriting. How does it, though, kind of mm, either distort or provide more transparency by having private equity involved? Like, I just think when there's a lot more players interested in picking up these properties, I wonder how does it distort potentially the prices uh, for some of these properties? Well, yeah, I know we're focused on private equity. It's not just private equity that's no. interested in family. I, I mean, I, I think about family wealth offices. I think about, um, you know, endowments. I mean, everybody's kind of chasing alternative investments at this point. Right. And it, it, it's a focus on yield. And I, I, mm-hmm. can I ask yourself the question, where else in the world can you get you know, low double-digit cash-on-cash returns? And it's hotels and it's real estate and it's like you said, high net worth individuals, family offices, public REITs, non-traded REITs. Basically, everyone is looking for hotels. The only bucket of capital that's not really active right now is the Chinese uh, capital bucket because there are capital constraints and a lot of things going on in China holding them back. But they're pretty much the only ones that aren't pursuing hotel investment opportunities 
in the U.S. right now. But that's a really good point. I know Bloomberg Business Week, we've done a bunch of reporting about, you know, we know the story in China, right? You had a lot of uh, money chasing a lot of properties, certainly here in the U.S. and outside uh, Chinese money chasing properties outside the, you know, outside of China. And then now you've got the Chinese government putting pressure because these guys have really leveraged up big time. And so they're selling properties. We're seeing that come into the market. How is that impacting what we're seeing? Well, we've seen uh, HNA have uh, having yeah. sold some of its investments. Anbang, uh, the old strategic portfolio that Blackstone actually bought mm-hmm. in 2015 and flipped to them, that that's rumored to be out there too. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of uh, hotel properties trade hands yet, but I think what's happening is the public REITs, the private equity guys, they have so much capital and they're eager to deploy it. I think if and when those properties do come to market, there is a really strong bid for large portfolios, medium-sized portfolios, and, and individual assets. So we don't expect uh, any kind of hiccup in pricing. If anything, uh, you know, the balance sheets are supportive of you know, additional properties coming to market. And to your question on distorting pricing, I, I, I think the way to think about it is a lot of investors who are kind of – we call them transient investors to the hotel space. They're mm-hmm. looking at investments today. They weren't around in 09, 10, 11, 12. They're buying now for a particular reason. Their thought is, if I'm a high net worth individual or family office, I can own this for 10, 15 years. I can weather one or two cycles. Therefore, I'm willing to take a lower return, which in in turn means a, a higher price you're willing to pay. I'm just curious, too, if you're seeing any signs as we try to figure out where we are in this economic cycle and when we might see the next recession. Are you seeing any indications based on the people buying into or selling out of the hotel REIT space, you know, their actions maybe tell you where we are in the cycle? Well, if if you go by the amount of capital that's on the sideline and the the conversations we have with people about their appetite for buying hotels, Mm -hmm. it certainly feels like it's 2013 or 2014 all over again. Hmm. Uh, Now, granted, RevPAR growth, the the primary industry metric that people look at is plus low single digits. Five years ago, it was plus mid-single digits. So the underwriting is a little bit different today than it was then. But um, you know, interest rates are a little bit higher, cap rates are a little bit higher, so it all balances out. But no, demand is still strong across the board, domestically, um, internationally. We're still seeing pockets of strength too, and we we come back to everyone has a job, everyone's traveling, people are still on the road traveling for business purposes. Groups are out there doing their meetings. Incentive travel is occurring. It, it's kind of clicking on all cylinders. It's not plus five, six, seven percent like it was five years ago, but plus two, three, three and a half, four percent. Everyone feels much better about that today than they did just 18 months ago. And I think that's the biggest difference. How quickly can the market change, though, based on the economic outlook and the interest rates uh, directions? Yeah, the the interest rate kind of topic of conversation is one that comes up a lot. But really, Mm -hmm. interest rates, the all-in borrowing costs haven't gone up that much. The base rates have come up. The spreads have come down because there's so much capital looking to be deployed. I think that the biggest risk on the hotel real estate side, on the pricing side, is the debt markets. If, if you have another tightening up like we did in late 15, early 16, right, it, it can kind of all unravel pretty quickly, especially when you're using 70, 75, 80% leverage, and that's how you're getting the math to work. Right. When that, when that market tightens up, it doesn't fully tighten up. It, it, it's a switch that gets turned from on to off pretty quickly. So, Michael, when we look at hotel REITs, I mean, not all hotel REITs are probably the same. Are there certain uh, markets in particular that you find interesting? I think in your note, uh, your research note, I think a couple of the areas that you highlighted included New York and South Florida. 
Yeah, New York is still going to be a, an average performing market at best. We think it will actually be an underperformer this year and even to the next year. But but the key there is it's getting less bad. There's a lot of supply. It's lower rated select service supply. You have an Airbnb impact. The business traveler was a little bit weaker. I, I think the markets we like over the next three to five years are the high barrier to entry markets. Uh, you know, California, Hawaii is going to be strong. Um, certain smaller markets that everyone knows about but maybe hasn't been to, Charleston, Savannah, um, the Nashvilles, basically where people are moving and where corporations are moving. Mm-hmm. When you kind of think about where we're at in the cycle, the demographic trends there are just so much stronger than they are, for example, in Chicago, where I'm at. I love that you say that because I feel like more and more investors I'm hearing from lately or investment professionals they're following things. It's not a, a complicated algorithm, but they're just following demographics and where people are going, where businesses are going, because that's where the demand's going to be. Right. And and usually it's you know, residential gets built first, and then mm-hmm. hotels, and then it, it kind of goes from there. But yeah, follow where the businesses are relocating. It's, it's Texas, it's Tennessee, it's Florida, Phoenix, Scottsdale. A lot of it is red states and pro-business cities. And granted, there's a little bit more supply coming online in those markets, but the demand trends are also very strong too. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, thank you so much, Michael. Nice to uh, talk with you this Monday. Michael Belisario, Senior Research Analyst of Hotel REITs at Bayer, joining us uh, on the phone from Chicago. Check him out on Twitter at RW Bear. Check out the company there. It's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today, a story written by Matt Winkler, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Bloomberg News. He's joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I read this story this morning. You write, Matt, about Amazon. Okay, $838 billion market cap, up almost 50% this year, and it's got a forward-looking PE of 138. And you write, it's a value stock. How's yeah. that? So Amazon's been consistent since it actually went public in 1997, meaning that it never focused on the next quarter. It never focused on the traditional things that define companies. It focused on literally creating value. And what I mean by that is Amazon would have dozens of projects in the works or works in progress. And the proof of its success that way is that within a year of going public, it already exceeded um, the market capitalization of Barnes & Noble, which was the number one bookseller. And that was the original uh, business of Amazon. Of course, Amazon went into everything else it could. That's why it's called the Everything Store. And by 2015, it had overtaken Walmart, the world's largest retailer, in also market capitalization. And then earlier this year, in five different industries where Amazon competes, it has uh, a greater market cap than all of those companies combined. And you've heard of them, IBM, Netflix, yeah. Microsoft, and well, so on. A few household names there. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, what that means is the company is a persistent innovator. It's a persistently um, focused company on how to improve customer experience. And it succeeded in doing so. And so we don't know that what Amazon is going to do next year, except we can be fairly confident, and analysts are at this point, that Amazon's going to be in another industry before we know it. And that's where the value is created, is that it doesn't stay in one place. It just keeps making new things, new products, new services, and doing it better 
than the industry leader. And that's why even at these unprecedented multiples, it actually has created value that you're going to be able to benefit from in the future. It's fascinating, right, Matt? Because if you think about it, there are times, I think, if you think about over the last few decades, business news, where a company was throwing money at so many different things, we would say, well, wait a minute, they don't really have a cohesive strategy. And yet when it comes to Amazon, they do go after new markets, new industries, and they seem to kind of make it better. Right. And you saw that just a couple of weeks ago when it decided essentially to get into the pharmaceutical business, right. uh, delivering essentially better health care, if you like, um, because of inefficiencies and because of customer um, dissatisfaction. And that's just another example of where Amazon has made a difference in the marketplace and succeeded. And it's not by luck, really. It's because it cares. Right, right. And it thinks about it. I also think constantly when I when I look at Amazon, I think about the infrastructure it's creating and how it's you and I before we started going, I said, this is a company that has made it so I want this product. I want it tomorrow. I'm willing to maybe even pay a few more bucks more for it because it's kind of changed our way of thinking about how we get consumables. Well, an example of that is before, um, you know, it was known as a competitor to, say, Walmart. Mm -hmm. It was already thinking about what you call delivery. And what that means is it was already on its way to becoming a logistics company, which is why, you know, it's essentially overtaken, at least in a technological way, UPS. Right. uh, And why, you know, its market cap is so much bigger, because it wasn't just about... um, delivering products. It was being the delivery service. Right. And figuring out a better way to do it. I also think about, I remember the first time that we put out this really big story about all of their streaming and their cloud business. And I think it caught some people by surprise, like, oh, wait, this is the company that keeps dropping boxes on my front door. But they were doing this and they were well ahead of the game when it came to having all those servers to provide Netflix and others. Yeah. I mean, I would say maybe five years ahead of just about everybody else. And You know, the cloud itself, according to Bloomberg Intelligence, is still not in any way a mature um, industry, if you like. And so the fact that Amazon has the advantage that it does already in the cloud and what's going to come out of the cloud is pretty revealing at this point of what its potential is. Do you feel like, though, it's interesting, the Wall Street community, because I feel like for a while, Matt, they had a hard time. They understood. They saw the revenue growth, but they didn't like it that the company wasn't profitable. Have they kind of changed their tune when it comes to it? Um, well, now that it is profitable. Well, now that it is. Now that it is profitable. <laughs> More recently. There are plenty of people at Wall Street who will say it's unsustainable and that uh, these valuations that uh, we're getting more used to with Amazon are uh, also unsustainable. So that's kind of consistent with where we were in 1997, you know, a month after the IPO, the Amazon IPO, when – A typical comment uh, was, you know, Amazon just doesn't have the muscle to be competitive with Barnes & Noble, which was then the number one, you know, bookseller. And where's Barnes & Noble And had better, by the way, had better traditional margins and measures of performance. So it was very unconventional at that point. And of course, as we know, within a year, Amazon had already overtaken. Well, it is among the most read, and I think it's a must read on this Monday. Matt, thank you so much. My pleasure. Greatly appreciate Matt Winkler, columnist, Bloomberg Opinion, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. 
I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Eric Ristabin is chief investment strategist at Russell Investments. Over $298 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Seattle. Hey, Eric, good to have you back with us. I'm curious about the kind of investment flows that you guys are seeing as of late. Uh, well, I think people are still um, – we're seeing money come in. Um, I think it's good flow, but, I, you know, there's been a lot of cash on the sidelines this entire market cycle. Uh, you know, in continuing – a lot of investors in the States continue to be very comfortable with the, the U.S. equity market over other uh, markets. Um, and I think, you're, you know, we've seen the trends everybody else has seen uh, with ETFs kind of dominating the forefront, which means you're, you're buying a lot of really big mega cap companies in the S&P. I mean, what's everybody waiting for? You take us back to 2009, right? March of 2009 is when we start, really saw the bottom there uh, in the equity cycle. And we've been up almost every year. 2015 was an exception. We were flat for 2011. What's everybody waiting for uh, if money's sitting on, on the sidelines? Because it, it kind of feels like I've heard many people talk about kind of us being in a, this Goldilocks environment. How much better can it get? Well, uh, you know, look, I, I would have told you for the, the first nine years of this bull market, I was right there with everybody else telling people to get money off the sidelines. Uh, I'm not as emphatic in that message right now. Um, look, we, we think a recession is not I- immediately nigh, but we do see a recession um, lurking in kind of the early 2020 range. And I think, frankly, you know, what's dominated this cycle is really the global financial crisis. I think investors um, were chastened and, and concerned that if they put their money into the market that they would have the kind of losses they experienced in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw that on the consumer side too, right? You, you, you've seen kind of the, the hallmark of this expansion is the lack of consumer debt fueling excess consumption. Consumers are in very good shape right now in the economic cycle. All right. So having said that, where would you be committing new money? Well, um, we, we do like equities. We, we, we happen to like non-U.S. equities more than we like U.S. equities. And, and there's a number of reasons, but the, the, the number one reason is we view the U.S. equity market as very, very expensive. Um, yeah, I, you know, to mm-hmm. note uh, that you saw an earnings growth number of 24.8 put up by the S&P 500, and the U.S. equity market has effectively done nothing. Um, since that number was put up. They got another 20% expectation built into the second quarter earnings. Um, we just think that the valuations of U.S. equities are not attractive, particularly given the fact that the, the monetary authority, the Federal Reserve, is tightening the monetary policy, and we think they're going to continue to do so. Okay. But, but you know, we've also heard projections that maybe they're not going to tight, tighten as aggressively as, as some anticipated initially um, because of some concerns about whether the trade – uh, kind of tit for tats that are going back and forth, whether or not that's going to eat into growth, whether it's going to make companies kind of hold back on some things. So um, could it could a slower Fed cycle of tightening maybe make for a much more hospitable environment, if you will, investment environment? 
Perhaps. Um, I, I, again, we don't see that as the likely path. Right. And for all those folks that are saying that the Fed is going to somehow get um, less uh, ambitious than they have been, they've raised interest rates eight times in the face of effectively no inflation. Um, so right. you know, I, I'm not sure what's going to cause them. I, I think their motivation is to be as far away from zero before the next recession starts. Right. And, and I do think there's a, in the back of their minds, I think there is a concern about asset valuations. All right. Um, you do say you like other markets outside of the United States. Who in particular? Uh, we do like the emerging markets. Um, we like Europe and, and Japan on the developed side. Uh, they, they both had a relatively tough go of it in the second quarter. Um, most of that weakness, if not all of it, was dollar-related. Um, the U.S. dollar had a, had a big move in the quarter. Uh, we think that's largely done. And, and then last month, it's basically been flat. Uh, we think it's largely done because we don't think interest rates in the U.S. are likely to go up meaningfully from where they are now. And we think that was what was driving a lot of the dollar strength. You mentioned emerging. You get- Let me just ask you, though, emerging markets. Is China among them? And I bring that up because earlier we had a guest who who pointed out that 79% of most assets invested in international products are highly correlated to China, you know, in some way, directly or indirectly. Um, So what's your position when it comes to exposure to China right now? Well, uh, I think we're modestly underweight China directly. But if you're you're exposed to the emerging markets, as as your previous guest said, you're exposed to China. Um, they are the largest economy, the second largest economy in the world, and certainly the largest of the emerging markets. They're a massive trading partner with all of the emerging market economies. So they, you know, they're the lead dog. And so if you're exposed to emerging markets, you're exposed to China. And we, from an economic standpoint, think China is just fine and is likely to remain so. And valuations of emerging market stocks are, are much more attractive in our mind than U.S. stocks. And in, in most cases, the monetary policy authorities are, are moving in the right direction. There um, are exceptions, of course. Right, right. And so in terms of trade and tariffs, you're just not too concerned because we haven't really seen, um, when it comes to numbers and data, we haven't really seen a significant impact as of yet? Yeah, that's exactly right. It, right now, we view these as skirmishes. I mean, the numbers we're talking about are very small uh, in terms of the dollar amounts and the percentage of overall economic activity. If, if we escalate from a trade skirmish to a trade war, that will be bad for the emerging markets. They will get hit disproportionately. Um, we just don't think that's the likely path, and we think the markets can become more confident in that in the second half of this year. All right. Certainly going to give us uh, still lots more to talk about, that's for sure, in the second half. Eric Ristabin, thank you. Chief Investments strategist at Russell Investments, $298 billion and counting in terms of assets under management. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.